Well, I want you to take your Bible with me this morning and uh, find your place in the Gospel of Luke, please. The Gospel of Luke. I prayed about uh, exactly what we ought to do this morning. And, of course, we're going through Philippians, trying to on Sunday mornings. And uh, I am excited to get back in Philippians, but I'd really like to be together here in the building together for uh, our next... uh, passage of scripture in Philippians and the Lord put this text on my heart. I think it's pretty familiar to you. At least I hope it is. If not, I hope it will be after this uh, message this morning. But it's in the gospel of Luke chapter 10. The gospel of Luke chapter 10. Find your place there with me. I want to read one verse uh, at the beginning and then we'll read a few more verses. But leave your Bible open. We'll look at some verses in the middle and all around and even the previous chapter and the next chapter, Luke 9 and Luke 11, we'll look at some of these verses together and ask the Lord to help us from His Word this morning. Verse number 1, Luke chapter 10, the Bible says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before His face into every city and place whither he himself would come. So I want you to notice that Jesus uh, chose 70 uh, men, 70 disciples. He sent them out in twos. That would be 35, right? 35 groups that he sent out into these certain villages and towns that Jesus was Uh, getting ready to go to uh, potentially. And they were kind of to go preach and to uh, 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 heal diseases and cast out demons and all these things that gave them power to do that and then kind of prepare the way for Jesus. And how they responded to those men, those messengers, determined how Jesus would approach that town, whether he would go or not. But here's what I want you to look at. He sent them out. Now, these aren't the 12 disciples. This is an other, the Bible calls them other 70 also, men that have decided to follow Jesus and they've been trained, no doubt, by Jesus and even the 12. And now they are being used by God uh, to uh, preach the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, uh, verse 17, this is where it gets familiar. The Bible says that the 70 returned again. Do you see that? And the 70 returned again. So he sent them out. We don't know how long they were out preaching, but they came back again. And the Bible says that they returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now listen to verse 20. This is familiar to us. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice... Because your names are written in heaven. And with that verse in mind, and these verses in this context uh, that we'll try to put together and keep everything in context this morning, with that in mind, I want to preach on this thought, misplaced joy. Misplaced joy. 
Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the privilege we have, Lord, to gather together uh, via live stream. Lord, we would much rather be here in the building together this morning and much rather uh, interact together and worship together and sing together. Uh, But Lord, your providence has uh, dictated otherwise. And Lord, we trust you and we know you're always right. Lord, we're thankful for this technology that we have to be able to come into each home, uh, cell phones, tablets, TV screens, uh, computer screens, Lord, Lord, to uh, bring a Bible message and try to connect together that way. I pray that you'd bless it and help it. Lord, help me. Lord, I'm preaching in an empty building uh, this morning. And God, I pray that you'd touch me and help me, Lord, to, to preach as if I saw uh, all, of, all of our church family uh, in here today. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd take your word and use it for your glory. Touch me, I pray, and get all the glory for all that's done. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I thought about this. Have you ever been really excited? excited about something um just, I mean, just over the top. Maybe something great has happened, maybe at work or maybe at school or uh, just something really exciting, something that uh, you really wanted to happen and it happened only to go tell somebody about it, somebody that really means a lot to you, somebody that maybe you thought would rejoice with you about it, but only for them to maybe like, you know, burst your bubble or to uh, knock all the wind out of your sails. Uh, that's kind of what's happening here in this text. And it's kind of amazing. You know, we talked the other day about being careful about using that little phrase, what would Jesus do? Because we don't always know what Jesus would do. This is one of those instances where Jesus really does something that none of us could have ever predicted. In fact, it's really a little hard to understand sometimes. Well, we said that Jesus sent these 70 out and he gave them a job to do and he wanted them to prepare the way uh, for the ministry of, uh, for his ministry, for the ministry of Jesus. And, and he gives them warnings about their trip. He tells them, uh, if you go back into verse number 2, through verse 16, there's all these warnings about, about how their trip is going to be. He said in verse number three, he said, it's going to be a dangerous trip. He said, I'm going to send you out uh, like lambs among wolves. He said that uh, don't take any money with you. Don't carry any money. You're not going to need it. Uh, You will be provided for and you will be taken care of. So just go by faith. Uh, But then he tells them in the next couple of verses, verse five and six, not everybody's going to receive you. You'll go into some homes and you'll say, peace be to this house. And not everybody's going to receive you, but some will and uh, stay there. And then verses 7 and 8, he really tells them something that I would really, really have trouble with personally. He tells them that whatever they put on the table in front of you, that's what you got to eat. Whatever they set before you, that's where you eat. I think that's where I would be uh, telling Jesus, maybe uh, this program just isn't uh, quite right for me. Maybe I need to do something else. But nonetheless, that's what they did. And he said, just eat what they give you. And then he spends the next couple of verses telling them, look, you preach the message, heal the sick. If they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet, rebuke them, pretty much tell them, listen, you're sealing your fate. You're going to hell. If you don't repent, this is your chance. And uh, it's a pretty pretty sharp uh, message here. It's going to be a dangerous journey. They're not going to take any money. They might be rejected. All these things that he's talking about. But yet the Bible says in verse 21 that they returned again with joy. Now, that's amazing to me that they returned again. Uh, just, I would be joyful if I returned again from this trip just alive. Nobody killed them. They didn't starve to death. Uh, they didn't run out of money. They always had somewhere to sleep. They didn't get uh, robbed or anything like that. Just the fact that they came out and came back to Jesus alive um, 
That's something to be joyous over right there. But then to be able to have some tangible success, something they could point at and say, man, look what happened while we were on this trip. Uh, demons came out of people. We cast spirits out of people that were oppressed by these uh, demonic spirits, and they come back with joy. Now, if I was Jesus, and I'm not, but if I was, this is one of the things I don't understand why Jesus always does what he does and says what he says, but if I was Jesus and my ministry uh, protégés, these disciples, I've sent them out, and they come back, and they're not mad, they're not bitter, they're not angry, they're happy, they're full of joy, they're excited, they're pumped up, they got to see some awesome things. Their needs were taken care of. They always had a place to sleep. They're safe. They're alive. And they're happy. If I was Jesus, I would say, man, that is awesome. I would be, I would be so thankful for that. I, I, I love it when people do their job with joy. I, I like to see that. Listen, you know, if somebody, you know, they got to get up in the choir, or they got to play the piano, or they got to sing a special, or they got to go to Sunday school, or they have to do this, and they act like, you know, their name ought to be in the back of the Fox's Book of Martyrs or something because of what they're doing. I don't like to see that. Nobody likes to see that. We like to see people serve with gladness, right? That's what the psalmist said, serve the Lord with gladness. We want to see people serve with joy. And so when I see people in our church serving with joy, and they, they man, they grab a broom and they love to. They grab a mop and they love to. They grab a vacuum and they love to. Man, they picking up trash and they love Just to be able to serve Jesus no matter what, that brings me joy right there. But it's amazing to me when they come back with joy, they were not met with joy by Jesus. In fact, Jesus, in verse 20, he tells them not to rejoice. Do you see that? He said, in this rejoice not. It seems like to me that Jesus is kind of like the ultimate killjoy here. He's rebuking them for rejoicing over the visible results that they had seen while on this mission trip. And then he gives them, he corrects them, not only does he rebuke them, but then he corrects them and he tells them what they should be rejoicing over, that their names are written in heaven. Now, of course, we ought to rejoice over our names being written in heaven. Maybe these guys would have said, oh, yeah, of, of course about that. But what is Jesus doing here? Why, why would he rebuke them so sharply? Why wouldn't he uh, uh, maybe cultivate some of that joy? Why does he just abruptly uh, say, hey, don't be excited about that. Don't rejoice in these things that you're rejoicing in, but rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Is it wrong to rejoice over results that you see in the ministry or even in your life? Is it wrong to rejoice over getting a raise? Is it wrong to rejoice over getting a new car? Is it wrong to rejoice when your kids uh, do well, maybe when they hit a home run ball or something like that? Is it wrong to rejoice when these things are uh, happening in your life? Uh, is it wrong to do that? Well, not necessarily, and I don't think that that's what Jesus is exactly getting at Here's what I want you to remember about Jesus, and we know this, but here's what we got to remember to keep in context, that Jesus knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. Um, Jesus, he can see the inside. I, I can't see the inside of people. I, I can't judge motives. Sometimes I, sometimes I do, and I'm, I'm way off, uh, just like we all are. But Jesus, he never gets it wrong. He can always know not only what we're doing, but why we're doing what we're doing. He can see the inside of our hearts and, uh, and know exactly 
what is going on. And so we have to believe that that's exactly what was going on in this text. Jesus saw these men come back. They were rejoicing. But there was an issue that needed to be corrected. The issue was a case of misplaced joy. They were joying and rejoicing in one thing while neglecting to rejoice in something else. You know, even, even the Bible tells us, James said, I think it's James 4, 16, that tells us there is a rejoicing that can be evil when we rejoice and boast in our plans and stuff like that. There is a rejoicing that is not rejoicing in the Lord, not rejoicing in the power of God, not rejoicing in the goodness of God and the grace of God, but it's rejoicing rather sometimes selfishly in ourselves or in things that, uh, that we should not be rejoicing in. Now these men, I believe Jesus is, is correcting this mistake because these men made the mistake that all of us struggle with. Every single one of us struggle with this issue and that is that there are times, in fact, there are many times where our source of joy, our, 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 where we, where we uh, derive the joy for our life, it's misplaced. And we put it and we, and we, we elevate inferior things to the place of ultimate things and make them the cause for our joy. And they can even be good things. Casting out devils is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's something Jesus gave them power to do. Yet even a good thing can become sometimes a bad thing if we make that thing our ultimate source of joy. And so Jesus was not trying to kill their joy. Jesus was actually trying to sustain their joy. He was trying to redirect their joy into something that would keep them joyful for all of their life and ministry and all of eternity. And I'm so glad Jesus is like that. He knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and He's willing to make the correction, even if it might take us by surprise or catch us off guard at first. You see, these men, they were rejoicing in their performance and what they had done and what the good things that were going on at the time. And we do the same thing. We rejoice in good things. We rejoice in our possessions sometimes. And we let what we have in the bank account or what we have in the driveway or what we have in the safe or what we have in the jewelry box or what we have, uh, uh, what the furniture that we have or, the, or our lawn or our boat or our vacation house or whatever. We let those things become a, a source of joy where we get our joy or even our plans and our pleasures or circumstances being just like we want them to be or how well we're received by other people, whether we're popular, whether we're accepted by a certain crowd or whether certain people like us. We'll let that become our source of joy uh, and, instead of what it ought to be. Um, and the reason they ought not to be those things is because those are inferior things that will ultimately change or will not satisfy you. What does Jesus replace their source of joy with? He said, rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Listen, your joy should not ultimately be derived from your possessions, your plans, your peaceful circumstances, things that you do for pleasure, or even your popularity. Your source of joy ought to be your position in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that our names are written in heaven, that we are eternally secure uh, 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 in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are seated together in heavenly places because, listen, if that is your source of joy, you'll never run out of joy. You'll never, you'll never ever have uh, uh, times where your joy is not overflowing when your joy is plugged into the right power source. You'll only have joy in your life when you have what is the source of your joy. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. You will only have joy in your life when you have what is the source of your joy. Uh, like this, if you're the source of your joy is possessions, then you'll only have joy when you have those possessions, right? If the source of your joy is popularity, well, you'll only have joy uh, seemingly when people like you and approve of you and, and they're, they're uh, applauding you and they're for you. Uh, if you live by people's approval, well, then you'll die by their criticism. And that's just how it is. Whatever's causing you to live can also cause you to die. It's a two-edged sword. And so if, if it's circumstances, if everything has to be going right and it's got to be peaceful circumstances for you to have joy, then guess what? When things get rocky and the storms come and, and the valleys are long and wide, guess what? You're not going to have joy in your life. But if you are plugged into something that never changes, if you are plugged in to the fact that your name is written in heaven, then guess what? You'll always be able to have joy in your life. Now I want you to notice what Jesus says to them just for a few minutes here. I see three areas of misplaced joy that Jesus really exposes uh, in these disciples' life. And so I'm going to give you three things that you don't need to place your joy in. Really, it's from the text here. I, I believe we can see this as we keep everything in context here. And so let me give you three things. Maybe you want to write them down, remember them, whatever you need to do. But listen to this. Do not ultimately place your joy in, number one, things that can be compared things that can be compared. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Really, to keep everything in, in the right context, you really have to go back to chapter number 9 because there's some interesting things about the 12 disciples, not the 70 disciples. They're two different groups. But the 12 disciples in chapter number 9. Jesus actually uh, commissioned them just like He did the 70 in chapters nine, chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. I'm not going to take time to read it right now, but look over those verses and you'll see that he almost gave them the same kind of commission that he gave to uh, the 70 in verses uh, 2 through 16 of chapter 10. And so he sends them out. But I want you to notice what happens when it comes their time to cast out devils. In a certain case, they weren't able to. Verse 37. Let's read that. Luke 9, 37. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. Now Jesus rebukes them, right? In verse 41, and Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Uh, and Jesus in verse 42 uh, cast the, the spirit out of this boy. 
And so this exorcism thing, this, this ability of casting out demons at this point, it kind of becomes a, a measuring stick for spiritual power. Jesus rebukes them and says, you did not have the faith, you did not have the spiritual authority and power to be able to cast out this kind of spirit. Mark 9 tells us that Jesus told His disciples, this kind, remember that, cometh not by prayer and fasting, right? You're, you're just not at that level to be able to cast out this type of spirit. So I want you to think about that. And then this thing of casting out spirits, not only does it become kind of a measuring stick by, uh, of spiritual power, but then it becomes kind of, a, of an issue of jealousy. Because a few verses later, same chapter, Luke 9, verse number 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. John said, hey, we saw this other guy. He's not part of us. He's not part of our crowd. And uh, he's casting out devils. And John said, don't worry about him, Jesus. I took care of him. I made sure he knew that uh, he uh, was uh, out of line and out of place uh, by doing that because he had not, you know, wasn't officially part of our crowd. And Jesus rebuked John in verse 50 and said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. I wonder if there's a little bit of jealousy going on here on the part of this man is able to do things that our crowd is actually struggling with, struggling to get done just a little bit. So this idea of, of, uh, of casting out demons had become kind of a, an issue, right? They couldn't, couldn't heal this man's son and then somebody else is doing what they were struggling to do. And what's amazing to me is that the 12 were struggling with casting out demons and this issue and all the implications that it brought. But the 70, a different crowd altogether, was sent out in Luke chapter 10, just like the disciples were in, or the 12 disciples were in Luke chapter 9. And yet it seems like they were able to do, the 70 were able to do what the 12 struggled with. So when they come back to Jesus Right in verse number 20, or verse 17, Luke 10, 17, these 70 come back to Jesus. They're telling Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We didn't struggle one bit. We cast out the devils. We had no problem. They were subject unto us. And what is the first thing that Jesus... This is so interesting. This is so odd to me. Just a little bit. Verse 18. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth about these 70 disciples being able to cast out these devils. He said in verse 18, here's what Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now what does that have to do with anything, right? And there's different interpretations of what exactly Jesus was talking about right there. But I, I think here's what Jesus was saying right here. Jesus is saying, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed with what you've done. You cast out some spirits, that's true. He, but Jesus said, let me tell you what I've seen. I've seen Satan himself get cast out of heaven. And that was in eternity past. If you believe that's what that verse is talking about, maybe it was prophetically he could see it happening in the future. Either way, Jesus could see it and he knew. He said, I beheld it, I saw it. He said, you casting out these little demons that are, you know, little private uh, demons or whatever. He said, I've seen the five-star general cast out. He said, I've seen Satan fall as lightning from 
heaven. He said that your, your, your thing does not impress me at all. Maybe you are able to do what other disciples were not able to do. Maybe you're able to do what other people were struggling with. He said, but I have seen the devil himself get cast out. Now let me make an application right here. Listen to this. It is foolish to make your ultimate source of joy something that can be outdone. Something that can be compared to somebody else. These 70 disciples might have been comparing himself to the 12 disciples, but Jesus said, that ain't nothing. I've seen Satan himself get cast out. And if you make your ultimate source of joy something that can be outdone by somebody else and something that can be compared to somebody else, at some point in time, listen to me, at some point in time, you're going to look around and you're going to become dissatisfied. You're going to be dissatisfied with what you have. If your ultimate source of joy is a new car that you have, well, guess what? You're going to look around. Somebody else is going to have a newer car, right? If your ultimate source of joy is a, is a, is a, is a job and a salary figure you got, guess what? Somebody else has a, has, a, has a bigger salary. If your ultimate source of joy, even in the ministry, if it's how many people we have in our church or how many ministries we got going on, guess what? There's other churches that have more people and have more ministries and support more missionaries and doing all kinds of things. If that's what we pride ourselves in, if that's what our joy comes from, how many converts we have or how many members we have or how many good singers we have, and all, it does, somebody, there's always going to be something bigger and there's always going to be something better than what you have. Do not make your ultimate source of joy something that be, can be compared to what other people have. And we live in a day, of course, social media where it highlights all of, uh, of this and emphasizes all of that. Everybody's always flaunting what they have. We're always able to see what other people have. And we get miserable, don't we? Because we think, man, man, God's blessed me. Then, But then we get upset because... Uh, you know, somebody else has more than what we have and we get dissatisfied. Listen to me. That's why Jesus says, don't rejoice in this, that the demons are subject unto you. He's selling those 70 because guess what? I've seen bigger and I've seen better and it may not be too far down the road. It might be you <laughs> that can't cast out a demon somewhere and somebody else can and you might be jealous of them. Don't let that be your ultimate source of joy. Rather rejoice... Listen, rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Do you know why that right there, that fact is worthy of rooting our joy in to right there? Do you know why? Because that's the best thing in the world. There's nothing you can compare to it. There is nothing in the world, no job, no house, no car, no children, no wife, no, uh, 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 no uh, amount of money, uh, no uh, anything, no, nothing in all the world that is better than knowing that you're your name is written in heaven. That's the best thing in the whole wide world. So when your joy is rooted in that, your joy is already rooted in what is at the very top of the list. There's nothing better. You'll never, ever, ever, if your mind and your heart is settled and it is rooted in that fact that your name is written in heaven and you are saved by the good grace of God, your head will never get turned by something else and say, man, that's better than being saved because there is nothing better than knowing that you're saved. I promise every person that followed this world, every person, every rich man, every whoremonger, everything that tried to go for the pleasures of this world, the things of this world, and they're in hell right now, they would give up anything in exchange for their 
soul. What would it profit the, the, a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? He being, your soul being eternally secure and eternally saved is the best thing in the whole wide world. So therefore do not anchor your joy in something that can be compared with something else. Rather anchor it in what is incomparable and that is being saved by the grace of God. Number two, don't ultimately anchor your joy in things that can be compared. Number two, do not ultimately anchor your joy in things that can be concluded. Things that can be concluded. Now, notice our next verse. It's verse number 19, Luke 10, 19. Here's what Jesus said. Another interesting verse here. He said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So Jesus is saying, I've given you power over all these things. Now let me ask you a question. Do the disciples of Jesus, I consider myself a disciple of Christ, I hope you do as well, do we have power over these things right now? Um, power to tread on serpents and scorpions? Uh, I've never uh, wanted to find out, but I, I don't believe that we do. I don't believe we have power. In fact, I, I really don't encourage you to, uh, to try to find out those things. We do not have power to tread on serpents and scorpions and, and, and over all the power of the enemy in the context of what he's talking about here. And Nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's, that's not necessarily uh, what's going on to us. What, why, what, what's happening right here? Why, why am I bringing that up? Well, I don't want to have time to go into a whole lot of detail, but we understand that these kind of promises, and they are in the Gospels, Jesus talks about these things. They're special promise, promises for a special time. They were for a certain dispensation. And we notice, especially in the book of Acts, that transitory book, the age of the apostles begins to diminish. The church age begins to come to, begins to, come to a full installation. And these sign gifts, like the scorpions and the serpents and the casting out devils and all these things, those things began to diminish. Uh, and as the canon is completed, the sign gifts go away. These uh, powers fade away with the apostles and all that kind of stuff. We understand that. So it's a different dispensation. Here's the application that I want to make right here. Don't anchor your joy into things that don't last. You see, these disciples, they were excited about spirits being subject unto them. Well, listen, this was a power that was never meant to last forever and ever and ever and ever, right? This was a certain power for a certain time and a certain dispensation. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't allow your ultimate source of joy to be in things that may not last. They're just temporary. This was a temporary power for a temporary assignment and for a temporary day. Uh, and, uh, and a temporary dispensation that is taking place right here. And he says, do not anchor your joy in something that will not last. In fact, don't anchor in something that doesn't even always work, even in this dispensation when Jesus had given them power. Chapter 9 shows us that they weren't always able to wield this power like they had wanted to wield this power. And even if you, even if you can cast out demons, and even if you do throw out demons... Jesus tells us, go, go to the next chapter, chapter 11. This is pretty interesting here. Chapter 11, here's what Jesus tells us about these unclean spirits. Uh, Luke 11, verse 24. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none. 
He saith, I will return into my house whence I came out, and when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So even when you cast a demon out of somebody, you cast a devil out of somebody, that doesn't mean that that devil can't come back. In fact, Jesus said that many times he does come back and he comes back with friends. <laughs> and, it, and it's worse than it was to begin with. And so what Jesus is saying here, you can get excited, you can anchor your joy in the fact that you can cast demons out of people, but you need to know this, that's not going to last forever. You're not always going to be able to do that. And even if you can do it, it doesn't always last. And it doesn't always it doesn't always uh, uh, uh you know, keep forever. Sometimes these demons come back. What are you going to do? If that's where your joy is, now listen to me. I'm, all, I'm trying to hurry, all right. But when, when that's where your joy is right there, when that's where your joy is in something that doesn't last, if your joy is in the fact that you can cast demons out of people, what are you going to do when those demons come back? What are you going to do when they go back into that man? And, and, it, and the guy, Jesus said his last state is worse than the first. What are you going to do when, when the demons come back into that guy and he's worse off than, than, than he was to begin with? Now listen, I like to see results. I like to see people get help. I, love to, I want people to get closer to God. I, I want people to get saved. I want people to be discipled. I want people to bear fruit. I want people to get closer to God. But I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes I don't see that, right? Sometimes, in fact, we've even seen it. And, uh, it's unfortunate. I hate it. It breaks my heart. We've even seen some people that, that were amongst us and a part of us and part of our church, and they're not going forward. They're going backwards. Seems like we got the demons out, but then they got some friends and they come back. But if that's where my joy is, if my joy is only in how people are doing and how people are responding to the message and, how, and the results that we can see, listen, sometimes my joy will be up and sometimes my joy will be down. If the altars are full, then praise the Lord. But when nobody responds, what, am I just going to sit around and cry somewhere? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to be devastated when the offerings are good, when the offerings are down, when things are happening, when things are not. Listen, your joy cannot be rooted in things that do not last. Sometimes there will be results and sometimes there will not be results. You see, these things are changeable. They are fluid circumstances. Dispensations in. Promises are for a special time. Sometimes you can't cast out the demons. Sometimes the demons come back and it's even worse than they were to begin with. But instead of trusting these changeable things to bring you joy, why don't we anchor our joy in something that never changes? What is that, preacher? I'll tell you what it is. Your name's written in heaven. That never changes. Dispensations come to an end. Sometimes the demons come back. Sometimes people are doing good. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes things are happening. Sometimes they ain't. But let me tell you something that never changes. My name is written in heaven. And that's why when people love the preaching or when people hate the preaching, when people respond to the preaching, when they don't respond to the preaching, when they love the preacher, when they don't love the preacher, when things are going good, when there's a house full or like this morning when there's nobody in here. Listen, I can still have joy in my life. Why? I'll tell you why. Because my name is written in heaven. That's why. That is fixed. That is final. That is forever. Do not put your joy in things that come to a conclusion or things that can come to a conclusion. So number one, don't put your joy in things that can be compared don't put your joy in things that can be concluded. And number three, and I'm done, don't put your joy in things that can be conceded. Things that can be conceded. 
I, I, Jesus knows their heart. He knows what's going on when they come. That's why it seems, Jesus, why can't you just rejoice with them? Why can't you just be happy for them and joy with them that these demons are such? Why, why does Jesus feel the need to almost rebuke them and, of course, correct them and instruct them? Why does He feel it? Because He knows their heart. And there seems to be, as we look over this again, it seems to be obviously that Jesus is correcting them because there's something that needs to be corrected. There's something in their heart that needs to be corrected. And it looks like the emphasis of these people, when they come back in verse 17, they say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They're, it's not that they are, uh, they're, they're not rejoicing in, they come back with joy, they do. But these men, they're not rejoicing in the fact that people are being helped. And that is a good thing to rejoice in. But that's not what they're rejoicing in. They're not rejoicing in the fact that, you know, the kingdom of Satan has taken a hit, you know, because they have preached and, and been able to perform these miracles. That's not what they're rejoicing in. It seems to me that they're rejoicing more in the fact that they have authority over these spirits. You see what they said? They said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. It's almost like they're very excited. That's what is causing them joy. So sometimes joy can be a bad thing. Sometimes rejoicing can be an evil thing. James 4, 16, all such rejoicing is evil and boasting in our plans and stuff like that without God. Rejoicing sometimes can be an evil thing and that seems to be the case here. It seems that it's more of a conceited type joy. And I think Jesus picked up on their pride. He, he discerned their pride about their ministerial accomplishments. The things that they had done in the ministry were giving them joy. Now, there's nothing wrong with being excited or rejoicing over things that you have done in the ministry or things that God's accomplished and all that. But when there is pride mixed in with that and mingled in with that, when your ministerial or your life accomplishments or whatever, when it causes you to be puffed up and that is where you get your joy, that's called pride. And we all tend to be the same way, whether you're in, quote unquote, the ministry or not. We all deal with this. And, and I thought about this, how... Sometimes when we wake up in the morning and, you know, we, we're, we get up out of bed and we read our Bible and we do good all day and it seems like maybe we pass out some tracts and we invite somebody to church and we're, we're good at work and we do a good job and then we come home and we're actually nice to the spouse and we love our husband, we love our wife, we, we, we're nice to the kids, we're not yelling at them and we don't kick the dog or anything like that. We're not, and we come to the end of the day after we put together this really good day. We come to the end of the day and, you know, we think, ah, oh, I'm joyful. But then, you know, you wake up the next day and, and you had overslept and you're in a hurry and you're stressed out and you kick the dog and you yell at the kids and you snap at the wife or the husband and then you don't want to tell anybody about Jesus and it's not a good day at all. And you come to the end of that day and you're miserable, right? You're miserable. Now, the issue we need to search our hearts about is this. Why can't we have joy on our bad days over the fact that we are saved and our name is written in heaven? Or has our performance become our idol? Can we only have joy 
when we have been, quote unquote, good, when we have done good? Uh, Have we made an idol out of doing good and being good and accomplishing good things? Or are we really joyful in our position in Christ? You see, if we're really joyful in who we are in Jesus, then even on our bad days, when we sit down at the end of the day and say, you know what, I haven't done as good as I could have done today. There's been some things undone and I've made some mistakes. But at the end of the day, there's still an underlying strong current of joy because we know that our name is written in heaven. Because the truth is this, is that you're just as saved on your bad days as you are on your good days. Your good days when you've done everything right, you read your Bible and you prayed, you passed out a track or whatever, you're saved. But on your bad days, when you cursed under your breath and you were mad and you were upset and you just not do it, not doing too great that day, can I give you some, can I give you some, uh, give you a word right here and that is this, you are still just as saved as you were on that good day. I'm so thankful that our accomplishments, our performance does not dictate our joy, or at least it should not, when our joy is rooted in our position in Christ that our names are written in heaven instead of how good we are or how good we do or the things that we've done. Eliminate pride out of your life and you can rejoice every single day, even on the bad days, even when your flesh fails, even when you mess up, even when you you don't do everything you ought to do, there can still be joy there. You don't lose your joy because you lost your temper or you lost uh, your, your head for a few minutes or something like that. And in the next verse, verse 21, I'm done. It's the only time in your Bible you'll see Jesus rejoicing. He rejoices over the fact that God had revealed this saving truth to these men. He rejoiced over the fact that their names were written in heaven. So one time in your Bible, you'll see Jesus rejoicing. You see Him weeping and tired and thirsty and hungry. But here He's rejoicing. He gets happy in the Lord. In verse 23, 24, He tells them how blessed they are because they are saved. That's where the real blessing is. It's a blessing. Listen, it's a blessing to have things It's a blessing to be able to do things. It's a blessing to be able to accomplish things. But that's not where our joy is ultimately found in. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ and having our names written in heaven. So my question is, even on tough times like we're living in these days, you can still have joy. But you got to ask yourself this question, what is your joy rooted in? Is it rooted in all the things you've done or all the things you have or all the things you feel like you are? Or is it rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ? We ought to rejoice this morning that our names are written in heaven. And when that's where our joy is found, you can have joy every single day of your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thankful.